Recording in progress. I now welcome. I now call to order the Shoreline City Council regular meeting for Monday, February 26, 2024. Will you please join me in the flag salute? Thank you. Will the clerk please call the roll? Mayor Roberts. Here. Deputy Mayor Mark. Present. Councilmember Ramsdale. Councilmember Scully. Present. Councilmember Adamasu. Councilmember Poby. Councilmember Robertson. Uh, yeah. Councilmember Scully. Thank you. I, I believe Councilmembers Adamasu and uh, Robinson will be Robertson will be joining us, but I move to excuse Councilmember Ramsdale for personal reasons. Second that. There's a motion and a second to excuse Councilmember Ramsdale for personal reasons. Is there any objection? Seeing no objection, that motion passes unanimously. The next item is approval of the agenda. As if there's no objections or comments, the agenda will be adopted by unanimous consent. Next on the report is the report of the city manager, Mr. Ellington. Good evening, Council. Shoreline parents are invited to join us for our summer camp information night on Wednesday at 6 p.m. This night is designed to help you make an informed decision about enrolling your child in our summer programs. We will provide an overview of our camps, including the activities planned, dates and times of the sessions, the cost of the weekly enrollment, and our scholarship options. Get more information at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar. The team program is kicking off a new seri speaker series of professionals from various career areas. Our first speaker will be a tattoo artist on Thursday at 4 p.m. Sixth and 12th graders are invited to join us to hear about their job and how they got started. We'll also have pizza, so come for the speaker and stay for a slice. Learn more at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar. <laughs> Finally, the next meeting on the calendar is your strategic planning workshop on Friday and Saturday, and then the regular council meeting on Monday. Visit the city's web calendar at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar for meeting agendas and information on how to participate in all of our public meetings. That concludes the city manager's report. Thank you, Mr. Ellington. Is there any council reports this evening? Councilmember Scully. Thank you. A couple things. I was appointed to the Shoreline Hearings Board, which is a statewide body which determines where overwater structures can be built. You will not be getting regular updates from me on that, but I will be working, <laughs> working in the background on it. Um, and I also was appointed to chair the Advanced Life Support Subcommittee, the EMS levy. It's kind of an odd levy. It's a two-part approval process. One goes to the voters as a normal levy would, but the other goes to 11 stakeholder groups, of which the city of Shoreline is one, and we have to get nine of those stakeholders to approve the plan. So I will be back before you in a year, hat in hand, asking that the council approve it. I have 13 meetings in the next 10 months. I will also not be updating you on it because it gets pretty weedy pretty fast. Um, but I'm happy to be working on both those things. And finally, I attended the Tibetan community's Losar celebration, which is their new year. They just got a grant from the state to purchase a community center, which is fantastic news for them. And I'm hopeful that Mr. Dom can work with them to help find a site in Shoreline. We have a large Tibetan community here, and I would love to see their their locus here now that they finally got some money to actually build it. Thank you. Any further council reports? Councilmember Adamasu. Hi, I attended the online green buildings and the Inflation Reduction Act. 
um, climate pollution reduction grants. Uh, most of the talk was referring to large projects for public buildings. Um, I asked about grants uh, from the IRA for smaller projects that would dovetail with the need for affordable housing using the IRA uh, green built money for affordable housing and small middle housing type projects. I also volunteered one day at Seattle King County Clinic, which brings together healthcare organizations and volunteers from across the state of Washington. They produce a giant free four day health clinic at the Seattle Center. It was a great experience. Thank you. Uh, Deputy Mayor Mark. Thank you, Mayor. I attended the National League of Cities Energy, Environment, and Natural Resources Committee as we get prepared to go to the national, um, the, 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 the uh, Washington, D.C. trip and what was important. They have sent, uh, the National League of Cities has some things that they would like us to advocate for, one of which is PFAS liability not being uh, assumed in any way by municipalities in wastewater treatment. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, this weekend I attended on behalf of the city the Shore Lake Arts Festival Lantern Festival. It was a really good um, festival at uh, Spartan Gym. So uh, look forward to its fourth incarnation next year. And then we just finished up uh, today having a meeting with the Shoreline School Board and uh, some, with their directors and the superintendent. And it was a very productive meeting. And we talked about a lot of shared interests that we had and set a few things that we would need to have further discussion on. OK. So next on the agenda is public comment. This is the portion of the meeting where members of the public may address the city council on agenda items or any other matter pertaining to city business for three minutes or less, depending on the number of people wishing to speak. The total public comment period will be no more than 30 minutes. If more than 30, 10 people are signed up to speak, each speaker will be allocated two minutes. And is there anyone signed up to speak in person? We have, tonight? We have no one signed up in person and one remote speaker. Okay. Let's start with the remote public comment. Kathleen Russell. Good evening, Kathleen Russell, resident of Shoreline on behalf of Safe Shoreline Trees. I am addressing the tree retention discussion, page 78 of the council workshop packet. Trees are not an either or situation. Established trees and transportation and housing can all coexist. This will necessitate the evaluation of established trees by each capital project, not by a set percentage of project cost. For example, in the Arborist report for the sidewalk renovation along Fifth Avenue Northeast, it clearly states on page one, quote, the intent of the project is to retain all trees on private properties and as many trees within the row as is feasible while repairing the lifted sidewalks. Along Fifth Avenue Northeast between 175th and 165th, 59 trees have been retained by the root shaving and steel plate method. Appreciation to Public Works for taking this action to retain the mature trees. Citizens ask for this clear directive. The intent is to retain private property and row trees in capital and sidewalk projects, including 
the North 175th Corridor renovation, new sidewalks along 8th Avenue Northwest, 19th Avenue Northeast, and Dayton Avenue from North 178th to Richmond Beach Road. In addition, citizens ask for this clear directive. The intent is to retain private property and road trees, be applied to the next phase of North 155th sidewalk overlay from I-5 to 15th Avenue Northeast, and to phases two and three of the North 145th corridor renovation, which is in design now. It is past time for mature road trees to be considered as indispensable in the reduction of GHG emissions. In December 2023, the Department of Commerce issued 200 climate measures, including the GHG measure that states, improve and expand urban forest management to maximize or conserve carbon storage. Thank you for listening. Thank you. If is there any person in the audience who'd like to address the council at this time? Seeing none, we're going to go on. The next item is approval of the consent calendar. Is there a motion? Deputy Mayor Mark. Thank you. I move to approve the consent calendar. Second that. There is a motion and a second to approve the consent calendar. Will the clerk please conduct a roll call vote? Councilmember Scully? Aye. Councilmember Adamasu? Aye. Councilmember Poby? Aye. Deputy Mayor Mark? Aye. Mayor Roberts? Aye. Councilmember Robertson? Aye. That motion passes six to zero. The next item on the agenda is a study session on the Human Services Strategic Plan Draft Recommendations. Bethany Wilbrecht dunn is here to present the staff report. And I believe you have some guests. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Uh, my name is Bethany Walbrook dunn the City's Community Services Manager, and I am here with Catherine Cortez and Maddie Immel from Burke Consulting to uh, talk again about our Human Services Strategic Plan we've been working on since uh, the summer. Uh, we first came to Council on January 8th and gave uh, some preliminary information regarding uh, the community engagement that we uh, that Burke Consulting worked on, and we're here today to share uh, more information regarding the specific recommendations, or the draft recommendations, rather, that are within the report. And with that, I will turn it over to Catherine and Maddie. Yeah, thanks so much for having us back. Um, Great, thanks. Um, so we are here today presenting the recommendations and hopefully um, we've come with some big ideas, which is what you asked for last time. Recommendations that will have a clear and me meaningful impact on the well-being of Shoreline residents and we hope to share those today, all leading up to hopefully the strategic plan adoption in April. So to reiterate some of the content that we brought to you last month, um, we know that the need in Shoreline is significantly higher than current human services investments, and that cities in the region, not just the city of Shoreline, are facing a funding cliff, given that ARPA funds are ending at the, at the end of 2024. 
We also know that residents want to see the city respond to homelessness and provide high quality human services. And that some community members, especially those that don't speak English as their first language, lack uh, awareness or access to existing services. And lastly, that current uh, staff capacity is lower than in the past at the city of Shoreline and also in relation to peer cities. So you'll see that our recommendations are addressing some of these key issues as well as some of the other um, community needs that we talked about last month. So as we go through our recommendations, um, you'll notice that they're broken into four levels of investment. So um, the options include returning to a prior level of service, which is before ARPA and one-time funding, maintaining the current level of service at the city, which includes that ARPA and one-time funding, making a significant investment, and what would a transformative investment look like, both for cost and also the impact on the city and community. Each of these recommendations will go into the staff capacity that's needed to implement them, a general sense of cost and also the impact, and we'll review at the end um, a cost analysis overall. And then of course we wanna have time for discussion for you all to tell us which of these recommendations you'd like to pursue um, and what is necessary to realize them. So our six recommendations include updating the human services priorities and developing metrics around them, increasing contract services funding, especially with a focus on equity, exploring innovative programs and connecting human services to housing strategies, increasing staffing levels, maintaining or increasing community support specialists, and lastly, looking at identifying additional funding sources. We um, see these as separate, but it's important to recognize that they are connected in a number of ways. For instance, you, you know, it doesn't really make sense to update human services priorities if you don't have um, the ability to fund them or exploring innovative programs need uh, adequate staffing to do so. So we'll get into that in the discussion. But kind of to ground us um, in our recommendations and moving into our first one, we want to focus on why we are recommending these actions. So our first recommendation is centered around making sure that the human services priorities are reflective of current needs. You can see this graphic outlines our um, recommended priorities as basic needs, behavioral health, and housing and homelessness, with prioritizing communities um, most negatively impacted by inequity at the center of all of those priorities. Housing and homelessness is a new addition. And we also think as a part of this recommendation, it's important for staff to start to develop target outcome metrics so that the city knows um, its return on investment when it comes to human services funding. And I'll pass it over to Bethany to talk next about our next recommendations. Great, in terms of recommendations and what we hope to accomplish, um, I do wanna ground uh, the conversation further just talking about what our current uh, status is in 2024 in terms of contracted funding. And as you can see in this chart here, um, we do have the top uh, uh, item on that line item list. There is the competitive funding, which is has been set at 1% of a reoccurring general fund revenues. And in 2024, it's about 510,000 of which about 100,000 has been provided to King County Regional Homelessness Authority to implement uh, homelessness services programs. 
A second category is that dedicated reserved funding, which is about $250,000. And those are in projects that are, again, approved in our budget via line item. Those are items um, anywhere from the funding that the state provides for domestic violence services um, and the standard uh, funding to uh, our um, Shoreline Lake Forest Park Senior Center um, and the utility funding. And just to note there, those dollar amounts really have not changed in over 10 years. So that's been a real flat uh, number. And you see the one time which our council approved within the budget and then the COVID ARPA funding, which gets us to about $1.4 million in contracted services this year. And just to note that of that, the 760 of the top two line items are what is considered our program's base budget. So in terms of that second recommendation that Maddie uh, spoke about earlier, increasing contract services funding with a focus on equity, priority areas, and outcome metrics. And as you can see, the four categories that she discussed previously just for comparison. Um, one would be returning to that prior level of service, which would be um, maintaining that 1% uh, of general fund revenues and then having that dedicated revenues. Um, and again, those are formula funding set, um, whether that be from state revenues that we receive for specific purposes or just approved via line items in the budget. So that would be, uh, again, returning to a prior level of service. Uh, and then in terms of continued increase level, we would be looking at about one and a half million. And what that gets us is essentially 1.5% of reoccurring general fund revenues, and then uh, increasing uh, the base uh, set that has been set for those dedica dedicated revenues, giving the senior center some increase, as it hasn't been increased in 10 years. Um, and then additionally, having our homelessness services set at 25% additional of that 1.5, or I'm sorry, of that 1.5% uh, reoccurring general fund revenues. We can follow the same up from significant to transformative. Uh, significant would be 2% of reoccurring general fund revenues and transformative is when we talk, and we'll talk a little bit about a little bit later about that, about it would probably take uh, a bigger funding source, whether that's a levy or um, uh, some other mechanism. And again, in terms of the impact, um, in terms of continued increased level of service, um, we would have increased funding to continue to fund services, and it would also have availability to fund services that were previously backed by COVID funding. Um, in terms of significant, it would look to uh, support uh, wage equity for human services providers and be able to engage organizations uh, more effectively that are serving diverse populations. Uh, and I'll let the transformative sort of speak for itself, but it would allow us to really provide services more directive. Um, right now, we accept applications uh, looking to fund our priority areas, but we don't we don't have the ability with only 510,000 to say we're going to have a million dollars for rental assistance, for example, or something like that. So, in the significant transformative, there'd be more opportunities for targeted funding. Thanks, Bethany. And we're moving very quickly. So, you know, if you need us to slow down or have any questions, um, we're happy to take those. But I, I just wanted to take a moment and say, in terms of that spectrum, I mean, we feel so privileged to be here with a client that's really asked us to think big. Um, we know that these are things that 
can be challenging to implement. And we're not necessarily saying that all of these recommendations would happen immediately. We want to give you some real concrete things that you can think about for the upcoming 25-26 budget, but also to be able to dream a little bit about where you might explore and go over the course of years to really meet that need that we heard quite strongly in Shoreline. And to really, as, in, as we describe in this third recommendation, explore new ways of doing business. The uh, work that Bethany just talked about in terms of contract services, you have some fabulous partners and to be able to scale up the work that they're doing and do more and better in areas that you're already working is fantastic. It's also important to understand the changing landscape in Shoreline. So to know that with the affordable housing crisis, with homelessness so much on people's minds, that it's really important to think about an affordable housing program. You've been already starting on some different efforts and planning, um, but to bring together the efforts that are already being done, to magnify them, to make sure that you're working as optimally as possible with regional groups, um, that's something that takes some uh, focus and uh, some uh, deliberate kind of bringing together of resources. So that's uh, one of our sub-recommendations in this. In addition to that, we heard uh, questions about voucher programs and things like that last time we were here. And we agree that there's a growing evidence base that empowering people to make their own choices with financial assistance can be really meaningful to folks. And so that's one of our recommendations is to empower community-based organizations to directly uh, distribute some of those small grants to community members without constraining the uses to allow them to adapt to the crises that they see. Um, but even to build further on that, to really have that big dream to go to a transformative way is would, the next step, which would be to scale up and allow people not just to use money one time to help themselves out of a crisis, but to be able to plan, to start thinking about what would it look like over the course of a couple of years, if I had a basic income, what could I do to set myself on a path for a better future, for greater economic independence and so on. There's still a lot of challenges with implementing a basic income program, of course, with one of them being of course, the level of investment needed, as well as the need to have staffing to really understand a return on that investment, to be able to tell your constituents this money was used in a way that really uplifted people in the community for the long term. So those are the things that we think that would be really meaningful to explore. There certainly could be other kinds of innovative programs that if you had the staffing to be able to innovate and figure out what's a right fit, the right fit for Shoreline at the right moment um, would be, could be really powerful. So then there's kind of the how, and that's the segue of, you know, needing that staffing. So in the first place to have administrative staff that can do more than just sustain, kind of hold on to the contracts that you have and try to get them out each year, but to really scale up to have at least one full administrative staff additionally um, to the parts of Bethany largely that already are doing this good work to really ensure the effectiveness of the whole portfolio of human services strategies. And as we're giving you these ideas and you are yourselves are asking for ways to scale up to be more impactful, it's important to be able to have 
somebody minding the store, right, to make sure that those investments are uh, aligned with each other, aligned with other things that are going on in the community, and are able to uh, anticipate and go to the next step uh, as we scale up. So that would be the uh, one would help ensure that effectiveness of the existing portfolio. Two FTEs would really be able to kind of explore, do some strategic approaches, perhaps give in-depth support in a priority areas such as homelessness. And if you were to go to looking for another funding source and really to scale up, to be able to explore, to be a leader in the region, um, that could take as many as four FTEs. Uh, in addition, we also talk about maintaining or increasing your community support specialists. Um, you have one uh, community support specialist who has been funded by ARPA and has been doing this work. Um, that money, of course, will go away this year. So a return to prior level of service would be no one doing this. Um, but the case management, the referrals and navigation have really had a strong impact on people. And of all the ARPA investments, this is one that has been noted by many people as being a really important one to retain. Um, to have that sort of nimbleness, that agile ability to respond to people uh, who are, have not been able to traditionally access these services and who need that extra hand, warm handoff to get through the door. Um, Ideally, you would be able to do this with more than one person to cover more languages, to cover more uh, community groups. And potentially these could be contracted services in the community, in community-based organizations, or they could be shoreline staff. Um, both are good models uh, with different benefits to them. And that brings us to our final recommendation, which is of course that in order to do this broad spectrum of things, or even to pick and choose among them. You really need to be thinking about that funding. Um, in the near term, we know that uh, it's a hard thing to do, but it's also the most available to you is that to increase that percentage of general fund to backfill that ARPA COVID funded staff and activities in particular, um, that community support specialist, um, things that exist now and that would, the community could feel as a loss if they had to contract. Um, we also, of course, recommend that you review and you maximize the uses of other funding um, with that community development block grant, the state funds, and utility fees. But in order to make a truly transformative impact, you would have to look for new funding. Um, we recommend that looking at something like a ballot initiative for human services levy funding is something that could really create a sustainable, uh, meaningful difference. And of course, there's also the importance of thinking about the levy that you already have and whether there are pieces of that that really should be um, part of human services as well. So thinking about that spectrum um, over, over time. Um, and I'll turn it over to Bethany to talk about the whole financial summary. Yes, yeah, so this chart is sort of bringing a few of those things together. Uh, the funding package, which would be um, the funding that we've directed would be directed out in contracts as well as staffing. Um, and so again, we're looking at returning to the prior level of service, which would be that 1% um, and current directed funding, which is about to uh, $760,000 uh, and that's in 2024 funding. And the impact that would have is 
funding would, would continue to have small increases every year as it has since council, I believe in 2016, implemented um, that competitive funding for human services be based on 1% or it built up to 1% of general fund. So as the general fund increases, there is some small but not insignificant increases. But uh, I can't really speak to whether it would keep up with inflation, but just wanted to recognize that there is um, some funding. And as we've stated a few times, there is no, has been no increases to that directed funding, which means, for example, the Senior Center has been at 95708 um, for over a decade. Um, and nothing is built in, has been built in to increase that over time. And that there really is no uh, additional staff capacity uh, to develop metrics and track outcomes. Um, and uh, additionally, in terms of the loss of the community sports specialist, while we would of course continue to respond when community members contact us regarding services, we don't. We would not have the opportunity then to, as Catherine mentioned, have a warm handoff, do some of the legwork for folks that are already overwhelmed with their situations, sit down with them while they work with the public health to sign up for benefits, et cetera. That's just not something that we have the capacity or frankly, you know, the um, a background to do. Um, and as Catherine mentioned, those community sports specials can also be uh, in the community at agencies as well. And again, in, in terms of maintaining that current level of services, uh, it's at that one and a half million and two FTEs, which would be a human services uh, manager of some sort, as well as maintaining that community support specialist. And that allows us to converting that one-time funding that the council has identified and approved in our budget and the COVID expenditures and just kind of keep it as that about one and a half, 1.4 million that we've had funded for the last couple of years. And it does increase that staff capacity um, to sustainable levels and also really allows us to um, collect outcomes, uh, monitor metrics and have more of a public facing ability to share on the successes that we have in our community programs. I won't go over the dollar amounts in significant and transformative, but I will talk about the impact. And again, it does, it would allow for a really robust expansion of our current contracts and it encourages and, and supports wage equity strategies um, and improve community support and access. And speaking of the transformative one, we'd have the ability to um, pilot new affordable housing programs and initiatives. And um, there would also be the ability to scale service levels at a much higher basis and to really have the ability to, if council so chooses, to focus a much larger dollar amount on specific programs and really impact and transform some of the programs that are in the community. Did you have anything else that you wanted to cover here? Or? No, I can go right into the discussion. So um, we definitely heard you at your last meeting that you wanted to talk about ways to make an impact. And so um, we want to open the conversation to hear feedback on these options. As I believe Catherine mentioned, um, it's not as if each column is absolute, of course, but it just gives um, an idea of the lines of um, transformative actions uh, that we were looking in terms of packages, but there is a lot of opportunity for discussion and other thoughts. So we welcome the conversation. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Councilmember Scully. Thank you. And I'm not sure if there were communication issues or if I just set my expectations in the wrong place, but 
<coughs> this is not what I was hoping for. Um, it's a start. It's still a start. It's more of a start than we had last meeting. What I was hoping for is, and I'll get to the parts of your report where you tell me it's hard, um, a gap analysis saying here's affordable housing, a range of options, here's what we can do, here's what we recommend. And then at the end, an ask for if you want to do maintain, here's the programs you fund and here's what they cost. If you want to do enhance, here's the additional programs you fund and here's what they cost. If you want to do transformative, here's what we recommend you do. What we've got is really a let's fund a program to develop these programs. And I had thought we were past that. I mean, I thought when we commissioned this study that, that we were past that point. We were at the point of saying we need to put rubber to the road. And here's why. Because if we're going to go find $4 million, we've got to be able to make a case that we're delivering something specific and concrete. You cannot go to Olympia and say, I want $4 million for innovative programs. You can't go to the voters and say, here's a bond measure for innovative programs. What innovative programs? Well, there's limitations in the data. Can't tell you yet. You know? So I, I read the li list of reasons why it's hard to do that and why it's not the same as a sidewalk plan. But we have to do our best. I mean, we have to come up with thoughts. And if they're not 100% defensible, so be it. So I don't, I, I, mean, I hope this is not insulting. I hadn't intended it to be. I just think I had it in my head we'd get something different. And we need that different thing. If I may. Yeah. Um, so with the funding levels, frankly, that we've had, we don't have the ability to direct, to have that conversation. The agencies, okay. HopeLink would not be able to tell us because of the way they're set up, how much money they have to turn away. Um, it is, and to your point, is it possible? I, I did do some research regarding gap analysis, and I could not find the level. I, I looked at ones that were titled gap analysis, and they were not. They were needs assessments to say. Sure. Um, so I'm really struggling within this line of business within human services, community services, where that is available or how it is available, because frankly, our the system of human services in our region and probably our country is just not set up to have to be able to say. Um, you know, if you funded $100,000, that would take care of everyone in rental assistance each month. So that's where we're, I mean, honestly, we're struggling to to give you the answers to the questions. Yeah. And just, I'll say, if I can say one more thing, Please. and then I welcome any additional questions, of course, is the, the as of now, um, and again, I've started my work in human services. I went over to grants for a little bit, um, but now I'm back um, 20 years ago here. With the level the city has been providing for funding, we are a funder. We are not a director of exactly what is um, funded in, or exactly how human services are provided in our community because we don't have that level of impact in terms of dollars. So when we go out for funding, and this is the same in terms of a funding application, we work with um, cities all over the county. I know there's 40 cities in King County. There's probably 25 or 30 that we work with. We have a funding application every other year. We are asking for the agencies to help us figure out how to solve the problems that we know we have because they are truly the experts in the services provided. So, um, and that's what we're, you know, I um, mentioned in the presentation that, you know, once we start talking about $2 million, Yes, I would say we would not want to put that out for uh, everyone to apply for. We'd want to come back to council and say, we've done additional work. We believe that there is 
if we fund um, uh, rent assistance at a million dollars every year, it could make X impact. At this level, at, at where we are in terms of our program development, we don't have that data right now. So I'm not sure that answers your question, but yeah, thank you for. It identifies the difficulties, and I appreciate that, and I know they're mm -hmm. there. But I am not going to support $4 million for a set of programs that staff is going to develop. Right. That's not enough. But we need a plan. We need here's what the money's going for. And I understand the data is imperfect. I understand some of its guesswork. I understand that we may be missing opportunities by focusing on some. And if what you want is staff to develop that plan, well, I thought that's what we did. But okay, we'll do that. Let's, let's fund that. These are things we need. But it cannot be $4 million to develop mm -hmm. programs that are unspecified. Mm -hmm. That's not good enough. Mm -hmm. Councilmember Proby. Thank you, Mayor. When Councilmember Skirl started speaking, what I heard was needs assessment. And I said, this is tough. But um, I was excited about the presentation because I saw numbers. Uh, last month's presentation didn't have any. And it's really challenging times as we are looking at this. And so one of the things I was really using as a lens to go through, obviously, the equity lens, but reading the staff report, not the presentation, I really appreciated how everything is mapped out. And so one of the things I wanted to mention is expanding outreach to underrepresented communities, either through community engagement, which I know we are doing already. So if we can look at that. And also, as we are budgeting, I want to say that we should prepare a budget that is very attentive to equity. Uh, last year, when we got back from NLC, I mentioned, and so that's the beauty about being a council member. You can repeat yourself and nobody can fire you. Uh, I mentioned that the president, uh, the speaker from the president's office for budget and said that, I don't care about your values. Show me your budget and what they are tied to, then I'll tell you what you value. And so I'd love to see some itemized budget as we move forward. The three, if you back up one slide, the four options, no, one, two, three, four, yeah, I think four options, yeah. Returning to prior level of service, I think that's a strikeout. Nobody, we don't want to go back, we want to go forward. And I'm with Councilman Scully on, on uh, some, the trans, transformative aspect, but I think it's baby steps if, if we can absolutely start and then uh, be able to develop some metrics measuring tools to see where we are and be, be able to identify some gaps as well. That'd be fantastic. With the upper funding, it was great. You know, not only did it sustain some of the programs we have already, but it really also revealed some of the things that we absolutely do need. And so I think we made strides to expand our commitment to equity through our investment plans and strategies. Now the question is, how about equity-focused projects that were seeded, seeded as in S-E-E-D-E-D, -E -E by Ample Funds? How do we continue these projects? And I see that that is um, factored into maintaining current service, level of service, or significant. Uh, am I correct on that? Yeah, can I speak to specifically to Please, that? Please, Yeah, proceed. that's all right. Thank you, Council Member. Um, you know, we have from the very beginning, knowing that the ARPA funding is, you know, it will go away. We've been working very closely with our agencies um, from the very beginning, preparing them for that part um, possibility, whether that means um, 
making sure that we have worked with them over the last three years so that their reporting is appropriate and will meet the slightly higher requirements that we have for our ongoing funding programs. And we have met with them uh, twice a year at a minimum, and we also have done site visits to their organization, again, preparing them to know that if they were want to uh, access funding from the city past 24, that they would need to participate in the funding process or the competitive funding process that will, application process that will start shortly. And in fact, we are meeting with them, I believe tomorrow or Wednesday, just them to make sure that they have nowhere to find that, it is online. We just wanna make sure that they have access to that. But the reality is with the current funding and we've had other established funding programs that unless that total you know, 510, it will go up a little bit, which is 1%. Um, unless there's additional funding, there will be some competitiveness there and there may be less funding or no funding for certain programs. Um, we have found over the years that one, maybe one new program can sneak in every application cycle. Um, so it's, it's completely within reasonable assumption that if the funding is not available within the competitive process that some of those projects may not be able to continue with our funding. Okay, and so that means that uh, possibly maybe some projects that came up within this period that were uh, funded by the external sources, I mean funding sources that may have to go our way because we don't have uh, full funding or the capacity to do that. Okay. However, if we maintain current service level by going back to 1.5, there's a possibility. Correct. Or yes. if we go to 2.5, uh, 2%. Correct. Okay. Uh, clarification, you had answered Councilman Scully about we are a funder, not can you yeah. expand on that? I didn't get it. Sure, sure. Um, so I would say, again, with the level of funding that the city has historically um, funded its programs at, um, we are putting out a broad application uh, for a broad level of services within priority areas, and we have asked agencies to respond to that and say, tell us, they in their application, they tell us about the need and how it affects shoreline uh, residents, and then additionally, how they're planning and how their program is the best fit to um, solve that problem. So with, again, just with the level of funding that we have, we have not been in a place to say, we want you to serve X population on this side of the, you know, 99 or in this um, area, uh, and we're gonna give you this much, um, Again, just because we have not had, um, it's really hard to have really directive specific pilot projects like that when our total has been, you know, at $300,000 15 years ago. So um, we are a funder, we are a collaborator. We um, rely on the professionalism and the commitment of the folks in the community that are closest to the community, and those are our agencies, to help us figure out how to solve all of these needs um, that we know that are out in the community. Okay, so that is what this strategic plan has been tailored towards, right. not in-house, but Correct. collaborating with the external. Okay, Correct. All right. All right. thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Deputy Mayor Mark. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I'm, uh, thank you. I really appreciate your presentation. You clearly have spent a lot of time thinking about it. 
You were discussing the metrics that need to be developed so we can understand, and I think the metrics go uh, to, to help answer the question of did we get what we were trying to accomplish. Is that uh, both at the maintaining the current level of service or and significant or significant, or where did that kick in? I would say that kicks in at the maintain, which would include uh, administrative staff. We work very closely with our other suburban cities in terms of tracking. We have a online, um, most of our agencies do their reporting online, so the idea is that we'd be able to collect and have um, those available and they would, uh, I know you're, most of you are familiar with like our um, sustainability report where there'd be um, both narrative and, and a visual um, representation of hopefully both um, outputs, which are, you know, whether there'd be number of bed nights served at our Lake City Partners, uh, the Oaks Shelter, as well as outcomes um, within that report. What, what addition, I'm oh, sorry. I apologize, if I could just add one thing, I would say, of course, you know, like anything, metrics are on a spectrum. And when we think about how to collect metrics on existing programs and so on, that's absolutely something that would be in maintain. If you think about trying to really uh, tie into data in the community and build, bring that together. So directing data collection in a way that can give you long-term answers, it's a bigger investment that potentially falls, starts to climb into significant and so forth. That, that's exactly where I was going to, to try to understand that. You know, I, I appreciate uh, this, is, this is not the engineering world that I'm used to. It is something completely different. So I, I appreciate uh, what you're saying. What the, the four FTEs under a significant, what would they be doing? So um, I would believe at that level, there would be a lot more involvement in terms of gathering community together and agencies together in terms of some of the things that Catherine shared. Um, I don't want to say it would be, um, you know, it's almost too much to wish for in terms of the things that we'd be able to do. Um, because right now we're, we make sure folks are doing their contracted requirements. We, we get their audit reports, we track the things, we make sure they're performing, and that is sort of at capacity for us right now, where you know we are already very um, invested and involved in, on a staff basis, in some of our efforts like the North King County uh, Coalition on Homelessness and working with our school district on our CRT, uh, every other month meetings, NUSA, uh, North Urban Human Services Alliance, other things like that. But we would then have the capacity to do a lot more in depth, whether that be program analysis, um, data um, gathering, and, and getting to the point where if we have, again, sticking to that $4 million level, that we would have data and um, the ability to say, this is where the, that $2 million, $1 million investment would be best um, uh, served to help the community in, um, and we'd be able to have the data to back that up. Right now, we don't have the capacity to, to, to do any of that. So, so let me ask that again. Sure. <laughs> the the uh, council member Scully uh, talked about how we must go to voters with mm -hmm saying something. Tell me what we would tell voters with the 2% versus the one and a half. 
would these voters be voting or just, are you saying just or the question level? P P or people who, they say, yeah. why are you increasing human yeah. services funding? Yeah. Is that your question? Yes. Okay. Um, that's a great question. Um, so I have a couple of thoughts about that. One would be um, that, um, let me see here, hold on. It would be uh, a significant increase to allow these agencies to increase the level of funding that's provided. I would say mostly we would see that in financial assistance that's provided to agencies. It would do things like allow for, um, I know that the wage equity is listed under significant, but we're also seeing a lot of success in uh, like Center for Human Services, for example, who's their board has made a real commitment to provide timely raises and cost of in, uh, living increases each year uh, that has allowed them to maintain their staff. And we all know in human services, sometimes it's really the staff that can be uh, a success. So. I think, and, and also that it would be increased funding would show um, a response to their, um, what the community has told us through that resident survey in 20 and uh, 22, the top two needs were related to or what the citizens said they would like us to work on as a city is overall response to homelessness and uh, quality of human services. And so that can be seen as a direct response to that. In terms of uh, significantly, I'm just speaking of homelessness, significantly uh, increasing our response uh, to homelessness. One Thank more you. piece that I'm I too. would just add to that is we heard a lot of in our engagement about that issue of access, even to existing resources, and so the significant transformation, the significant investment does include community support specialists, which would be able to respond to specific groups that are farthest from access and be able to create that pathway to making sure that they're taking advantage of all the resources that they can, ideally at a multiplier effect. Councilman Rademacher. Hi, thank you. Um, I noticed that the affordable housing project mm -hmm. was only put in the transformative. Did you mean not looking at affordable housing or just at it as a specific project? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And a, and a further example of that, there is some, obviously, it's a menu and you can pick and choose things. And so just an acknowledgement there. Um, so in terms of like piloting new affordable housing in that transformative, that may be a fund that the council would set aside funding for that from that uh, larger um, $4 million number. Um, but even within that, in a, in a different level, uh, expanding staff capacity, we would be able to work towards an affordable housing plan. Again, if that's something that council wishes to prioritize, that would likely take um, some, frankly, some consultant dollars, but also the staff uh, ability to focus on that as well. But, um, and the council has very much been interested in affordable housing and we've, in my opinion, kind of nibbled around the edges and we'd really love to take a deep dive in looking at all the ways that we can encourage all types of housing and focusing on affordable housing in our community. Yeah, um, great. So the ability for BIPOC persons and other people's historically left out of mm -hmm. buying homes, mm -hmm. we all know home buying through Habitat for Humanity, land trusts, mm -hmm. it does lift people out of poverty over the long term. 
generational wealth. So someone that could be 50% AMI today when they buy an affordable home, 10 years from now, they're in the middle of class. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. always keeping people renting, is, I don't think is a solution. I think we need to focus on buying homes. And um, you talked also about the rental assistance program. Uh, as you heard from the students tonight, uh, one of them mentioned that low-income homeowner. Have you thought of expanding that program to mortgage assistance? Yeah, they. Okay. I, I should okay. be very clear about that. It's any financial assistance, okay. so they can be homeowners. Um, okay. You know, often we speak in uh, the simplistic term, so it is often renters, but it can be used for homeowners as well. Um, okay. And if I could speak to, if you don't mind, yeah. uh, regarding the homeownership. So uh, last year the council did have, as part of one of their dinner meetings, um, talking about land trust. And there, because there's been a huge in interest, specifically from Councilmember Ramsdell, regarding mm -hmm. that. And we were lucky to have the person that manages that program at the City of Seattle just give a great presentation about that. Uh, and so that would be one of the things that we would look more close at and see if that's something that council would be wanting to implement. And for for those type of programs, it really takes land or money. And right now, uh, that's not something that we have allocated for, um, but that we could look towards ways to maximize the resources that we do have or just kind of figure out what we're willing, what council would be willing to, again, I, in, in our toolbox of, of things to in, you know, increase housing, both affordable rental housing and homeownership. Thank so you. Th thank you for noting that. Thank you. Thank you. I have a couple of comments. Uh, first, I want to say thank you. I think this was a, um, I think that we're in the going, heading in the right direction in terms of this plan. What I especially liked about what you what was done, and I don't think it was really addressed here, is really rethinking what our priorities are and going to. Um, I won't say what I, I don't know how to describe that sort of bubble <laughs> Venn diagram. It's not quite a Venn diagram, but <laughs> but really the focus, moving sort of the focus to basic needs housing and homelessness and behavioral health as sort of key components of our um, our strategy as a city, I think, makes a lot of sense and is really, I think, a little bit more targeted than what we have currently. Um, so I, I, I really like that, and I think that I think that's one of the, if there is one thing that sort of really comes out of this is sort of, okay, really rethinking what, because we are, I mean, we know we're limited in terms of what we can do. Um, just like any um, nonprofit provider, they are limited in what they do, can do and what their capacity is. And so as a city, we are facing, have the same limitations. I do have a couple of questions. Um, first is, broadly, what kind of grants are there for human services programs? I mean, there's a lot of funding at the federal level for infrastructure. Um, there's a state capital budget, but What's the universe of grants for hum for human services broadly? Not much <laughs> for an answer. So obviously there are the larger foundations such as uh, United Way. Um, over time, they have also focused, you know, their dollars on their own priorities as well. Um, there's a lot of the levies that are available um, through King County. 
and we've had some success, or I shouldn't say we, I should say the community and the community agencies have had some success in gathering funds through those processes as well. I will say that the North Urban Human Services Alliance does a fantastic job connecting and making sure that our nonprofits in the North End know about all of the available funding that's available, you know, that is out there and tries to make sure that we're getting our fair share back into um, the North King County community. Additionally, um, in terms of the federal government, we do have uh, the Community Development Block Grant funding. We could use a very small, uh, it's like 10% of our allocation for human services, which we used to do. We did get um, previous city manager. We made a she made a um, had a recommendation, which council uh, approved at that time, to make that those funding available for uh, capital dollars only. Because frankly, for I think it was like thirty thousand dollars, it is a l much larger administrative lift, mm -hmm. and she made the decision to to swap that out for general fund within our budget. Um, so that could be a very small option to increase funding. Um, and then additionally, um, HopeLink gets funding uh, through the state from the feds for their community development activities. Um, so that's a large amount of their funding comes through there as well as they have heard. And, and I believe it, we went over it with HopeLink uh, a couple weeks ago at the dinner meeting. They have LIHEAP funding and other uh, heating and other assistance you know, program funding. And then a lot of them do a lot of work towards community fundraising as well. Um, and so um, that's always a, you know, a challenge in, in times like these. And then there's also agencies uh, that are, have the ability to access Medicaid and Medicaid care funding. Uh, but for the city, I mean, really we're, there's yes. very limited. Right, okay. correct, yeah. Um, the other question is, and I think this piece is missing within the strategic plan, is where are, I don't really see a, part, a discussion of sort of the partnerships or the capacity of some of our other uh, partners in, in the community. Um, we don't hear in this report, or there's nothing said in the report about the resources of the school district. I know those are in peril as well. Um, we don't know, we don't see in this report the, um, what the community college is doing. Uh, so when we have these other, uh, our partner organizations are in the city who are doing some of this work, but we don't necessarily know, I mean, you probably know, <laughs> but we don't necessarily, I mean, I don't think as a council in terms of informing the strategic plan, mm -hmm. what are those resources coming from the other, coming from these other agencies? So we're not necessarily duplicating the work uh, at the, as it's sort of a, a government level. I know that there was some discussion today about, okay, what gaps does the school district have? I mean, I think we need to definitely sort of think about that, mm -hmm. but I mean, we don't also know what, where, where they are actually, where they're putting some of their human service funding into. So that's a, I'm just trying to think about, about the best way to frame this. So traditionally, like, city government level human services programs have really been focused on funding community-based programs. So the programs of HopeLink and, and CHS. Uh, every once in a while you would see perhaps a community college come and request funding for a particular program. Um, so it's not to say that we don't collaborate or we don't work with them. Um, they just, see, uh, there's a, you know, we're, while we're serving sort of the birth to, to um, you know, our senior community, um, Often they have a very focused, whether it be edu well, both of those that you mentioned were education focused, and so we have we do obviously have a lot of um, 
of the same folks that are getting services at those locations. And I think you are correct to say that we could do uh, a more strategic job with connecting those things. And I will say like at our, we meet um, every other month with uh, the school district folks. And we do have people that come from the community college that can share information too. But we could do a better job in terms of collaboration for sure. Because I think, I just think that knowing what resources right. are out there helps inform what we yeah. need to do and where our gaps are. We did reach yes. out to Shoreline Community College during our engagement process and they were struggling to even have, be able to respond to us in an organized way. Um, just an example of the challenges that they're facing now. And I think, um, you know, that's sort of some of what we talked about in terms of that um, need for those administrative staffers, not at the transformative level, but even short of that, to be able to explore the fairly small world of, you know, philanthropy in terms of grants. I mean, that's, there are some human services grants, but they really are for when you can get onto somebody's interest and create some sort of innovative program. Um, similarly, you know, those partnerships can be really hard to tease out to really put the time in to figure out what resources could possibly be freed up, um, you know, in a partnership so it's not just the city of Shoreline supporting another partner. Councilmember Scully. Thank you. I, th I think what's most helpful for me at this point is figuring out sort of the buckets of needs, like affordable housing, that's an obvious bucket, mental health, that's another bucket, and then having some policy discussions among us over where we want to prioritize funds. Following that, a plan for how we identify potential programs and how to fund them. I think we need to get that granular. I'm not sure this plan is the right place to do that. So what I would appreciate as a next step is how do we get from saying it's transformative to here's what it actually looks like. And there needs to be significant council involved in that because we've got to raise the money for it. So we have to be able to weigh in on the policy stuff. Um, and beyond that, I don't have a thought on how we get there but I do think that is the next step, and I am convinced beyond all doubt that one thing we need is more staff for you to work with. I mean, you've obviously, there's no way for you to do all this stuff. So we've got a you know, budget cycle coming up. I don't want to wait. I mean, it seems to me that we need to, you know, we're, we spend pathetically small amounts of money on this. I would love to start dumping money into it, but I think we need to have that intermediate step of a plan. So whatever you need to do, Ms. Wolbrecht done, to get people on board to do the granular details, we'd appreciate it. Could I ask a follow-up question if that's okay? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So just to give you a sense of our buckets right now, if that's, if that's yeah. helpful. Um, in terms of our, our competitive funding in the last cycle, it was 55% was to basic needs and homelessness, 25% counseling behavioral health, 17% children and youth, and 3% older adults, but that does not include the um, senior center because they don't compete for funding. Um, obviously, we are, as, as, as Mayor Roberts noted, uh, suggesting slightly different, I don't know if we want to talk about those specific buckets. Um, again, I think the challenge, in, in, and we're going to need to do some more thinking here about how, how to move forward, um, really um, make sure we're productive in that is to think about how that interacts with how our application process works. Um, I think I mentioned in the staff report, while we received about $966,000 know, per year of funding requests in the last cycle, the agencies know we only have right now you know, 500 and something thousand dollars available, so they're not gonna ask for uh, $800,000. They know that that's gonna require phone calls and like how much do you really need? and 
too much of our funding recommendations in the past have been based on what did they receive last time? Have they met all their goals? And if they have, then it's like they're doing a good job. We're going to likely recommend that council approves um, a you know slate of funding. So it might take some, which is awesome, additional work to figure out what the best mix is because uh, you know they've been sort of um, conditioned into a box of funding and so that's a challenge that could be a challenge but we'll figure it out i think we're talking past each other i'm several steps before that okay i'm sorry. not worried about individual providers and what they're going to ask for and how okay. we're going to administer it i'm just looking at in our bucket of you know mental health here's what we fund here's some ideas for what else we could fund staff needs to work the details but if council prioritizes expanding direct services to youth for example it would cost this and then we can say, hey, whoa, we'd rather put more money into the bucket that is senior housing assistance, right? I mean, we're, we're at the very simple, like, what do we prioritize and how much does it cost, not the implementation details. So I guess I'm looking to the city manager and to what are, what are you looking for from us in terms of next steps? I know on the chart there was a potential adoption in April. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I think we're going to have to reconvene as staff. Um, I'm not sure if this is scheduled to come back for another discussion. It's, it is not, but it can be. That's not a, I mean, that, it'll take what it takes. That obviously. might be appropriate so that we have the opportunity to come back and see if we're closer to hitting the mark. Um, it is challenging. Um, I give much credit to staff and our consultants. Um, it is not easy to quantify the amount that's necessary, but I think if we can kind of identify those buckets, um, I don't know that all of that needs to be decided at this point. That's through the budget process. Um, but I think giving you the information so that you have the information to make the decision. Um, so I think it probably might be worth coming back, but um, let's convene as staff and I think we can be in a better position to give direction to council. Yeah, Thank you. And, and I'm, I'm not sure this is the vehicle for it. I mean, I, I think my expectations for what this was and what it is were off and that's my fault as much as anyone else's. It's all my fault. Um, so I'm not sure we need to go back and beat a dead horse and try and get this into a format. I think maybe what I've been talking about is the next steps. <clears throat> Yes, I'm thinking about the best way to blend the two because uh, it might be that's a very specific and it might take looking at what applications we get in or is that a step too far in terms of, you know, we do come back every fall to council and, and you know, provide you with our full list of recommendations. Obviously, we need a dollar amount uh, and we'll be further along in the budget process at that time to recommend, but, um, you know, we could go with buckets at that time or something in between. I don't want to hamstring anything okay. we're doing right now. So I, I, I don't, I don't, under no circumstances should we put the brakes on stuff and say, hold on, we've got to rethink for a year. We should oh, no, continue no, yeah, to fund yeah. as we've always done. And then the sooner we can say, we want to ramp this particular area up, then there's a gap when you tell us how we do that. And then there's a gap in implementing it. That's going to happen. That's, that's government. Um, so I think we should do both the same track. And again, I don't want you to be, you know, stand up all night and work on weekends too. We may need to provide you more staff before we get everything we want. And I think that's my question. I mean, it sort of ends up going to my question of what the next step needs to be, because 
at what level, I mean, I guess the question is, looking at these three buckets in generally, in, specific, just at the staffing point, not at anything else, but to get to what Councilmember Scully is asking for, and I think that many of us on the council articulated uh, the last time is, okay, how we want to solve problems. We want what, what, whatever it is, we want to say that no one in Shoreline is going to be homeless uh, or because of financial reasons. Let's just say that's a goal that we have. But I, I mean, I think that many of us wanted to sort of, and I think this is where Councilmember Scully wanted to get to was, okay, if that was our goal, this is what it's going to take to get to that goal. But what I'm hearing from you in this report is that we don't have the current staff to even get close to what that answer could be. Is that a fair? I would say that's a fair statement. And so what is it going to take, what level of human service funding is it going to take to get to that point where we can actually have better answers to that, to that sort of fundamental question we want to help people, we want to solve these problems. I think if I may, I would say, um, you know, some of what we've put into here is saying this is what we've heard clearly as in terms of priorities from the community. And then in order to, we, and with that I mean the housing and homelessness, the behavioral health and the basic needs, those three areas as being ones that need that level of deep exploration of what is to find out what the, the, the gap is. And in order to do that, there's not really an option to kind of just fund as you have been. In order to do that, it requires even just to kind of keep people from feeling that loss now, that small investment of community support specialist and some small raise in the amount of the uh, competitive funding, along with at least one additional administrative staff to be able to develop out that program to say, okay, now that we know what those priorities are and we can build out actual programs as to what that might look like and bring that back to council to choose among so, other priorities. So what I'm hearing is, I mean, you're not saying these words, but I'll put them into your mouth. But what you're saying is that we're looking at something at least that needs to get to a significant level of funding to actually begin to answer the questions that count, that we want and that council member Scully has articulated. Oh, I, I do think with the maintain like that category, we could really be on the way to I mean, really, the maintain current level of service does simply maintain, again, this higher level based on um, council one-time funding and COVID funding and does add staff. So there are costs, obviously, associated with both of those items from the general fund. But we could, we would definitely have then capacity to be able to move further in this direction because it's really hard to go from, you know, here to here and, you know, we're here right now. That's what it feels like. and. As desperately as I want to be able to, you know, respond specifically to Councilmember Scully's questions, it's it's a challenge based on the current format that we have. Okay. So the next question is thinking about what we are at, what the staff is asking us to adopt at the end of this process. Are you asking us to sort of make a decision on which level of service, or which what level of funding, however you want to answer that? Um, to is that what are the goal of this plan at the end of the day that plan would include one of these four broad buckets correct i believe you like we mentioned before it could be a 
pick and choose of, oh, within yeah. some port, some point that said, um, and I think Catherine kind of mentioned this, we can see the other uh, columns as being um, something to work towards, right? To, to, as we've talked about, to get to a place where we do have good data on where the specific increases would be most effective. Um, I think, you know, as we're mentioning right now in terms of the current level of service, um, that we're, yeah, it is really just maintaining, unfortunately, you know, based on what we're doing. So, um, so the goal, but they have the, again, the goal is to actually choose one of the, I mean, one of these broad buckets or create our own, but that will be what we have to adopt, what was adopted in the plan. We're not just adopting this as a report. We're with the, what the, these things could be. We, a goal is that we want to, you want us to, as a council, to say this is the our this is our preferred vision for what. The Correct. I think we can get to a preferred vision that will then, whether that's a certain category, whether it's bits and pieces, then. I don't think we need to necessarily lay it out line for line decided now in the right. plan. No, it can be the plan and then it, it informs the process of the budget that you all have to go through okay. in a few months. So what it sounds like is that we will have to have a discussion of this council specifically on that question of which level of service we would prefer. And at some, and it's before we move for adoption. It was staff recommendation obviously of what it is. Deputy Mayor Mark. Thank you. Uh, so, so to me, the primary focus has been not in going back to what was pre-COVID, but in maintaining and significant. That's what we're really trying to understand. And the significant, if, um, you know, if you said, if we funded at significant level, we could get answers to Councilmember Scully's questions faster that may be information that is useful. I would also uh, suggest that it's important to understand if we increase to one and a half percent or two percent of the general fund, what does that mean? What are we not doing? So I, I didn't hear any discussion of that, and I know that's not your ballywick, <laughs> but I see somebody who does know. Yes. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So I think, again, I think going forward, we would like, I think we should have a discussion. Unless, uh, Council Member, you, we think we need to revisit what's been produced. I think we need, we'll need to have another discussion about what level of funding we need, would I, like. I, I'm, if this is sort of an aspiration, like where are our values, I would fully support transformative as an aspiration. But in terms of implementing it, we have a long way to go. But, but I think I've come to the realization that this isn't the vehicle for doing that. So I think we do have to have the discussion, but I don't know that we need further data on the plan, right? <laughs> Any further discussion? Okay, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Okay, I guess that's me. <laughs> The next item on the agenda is a study session on ordinance number 987 pertaining to construction and building codes. Ray Altshouts, ah, tired already, and Ryan Burgess are here to present the staff report. Mr. Mayor, members of council, I'd like to introduce you to uh, Ryan Burgess. Well, let's uh, hold on until we have the microphone. Microphones. 
I'd like to introduce you to Ryan Burgess, <clears throat> who is the uh, fire marshal for the Shoreline Fire Department. Uh, he's held that position uh, for about a year now, uh, so time, time flies. And uh, of course, um, what, what we're trying to address you know, un under this proposed uh, ordinance is the update of our construction and building codes. And uh, as I explained in the staff report, this typically occur would occur on a, on a three-year cycle. But as you well know, uh, COVID threw a wrench in the works. And then on top of that, uh, there was a, uh, the uh, ninth, uh, Federal Ninth Circuit Court uh, rendered a decision uh, against the city of Berkeley, California uh, over a gas ban. And quite simply, what their gas ban was, was they said they would not allow the gas purveyor to expand their infrastructure. So in essence, all that new construction that went behind couldn't use gas. And the, the Ninth Circuit Court determined that that went beyond the, uh, uh, the bounds of the, the, the federal exemption uh, for uh, gas appliances. So that course got our attention up here in, in the state of Washington, uh, and specifically for for Shoreline, uh, for the second reason of the fact that you know at council's direction and encouragement, we move forward and, and have a more aggressive commercial energy code reflecting uh, what Seattle has done, and um, so we paid close attention to but because that code that what we could call an aspirational code, uh, it was the foundation for the, the 2021 version of the state commercial code. So uh, <clears throat> so the Building Code Council went through rulemaking for the entire year, basically because the, the state, Washington state codes do not ban gas. They severely limit it and they, in essence, penalize folks who want to use gas by having to compensate for it to make to make up for what uh, what, what uh, fossil fuels create in terms of a problem, which I don't need to school you on. You guys are expert on that, uh, and you're providing good direction uh, for the city, which uh, our citizens quite quite appreciate. But anyway, uh, to get back to the to the point that uh, so we found that we could then piggyback on what the uh, the state building code council did to develop uh, a, not a change in the code. That's one thing you need to understand. The the, the changes that we're talking about today are are, are really are minimal. Uh, I, I apologize for the fact that it took 50 pages of text, uh, and I really appreciate the fact that you've waded through that because I can tell by some of the questions that you did you did read it, uh, which is appreciated. Um, but the point was it, it just ended up being a little more complicated than, than we figured because even though the commercial energy code in terms of the content of what it's requiring people to do essentially doesn't change, but that took 31 pages to, to get, you know, come up with the text so that, so in the event if, if we are sued, uh, we, we've got a reasonable defense. And I understand uh, that uh, the, uh, the folks that uh, are not pleased with the, the direction that the state, the state continues to go on, on energy policy and codes, 
uh, is regrouping their suit, so I imagine they're going to be back. But as it stands right now, the, the March 15th date, and the reason it got pushed off, that was sort of the second year, was because they needed the time to do the rulemaking, get it done so it basically could sit through uh, a session of the legislature, and the legislature has not moved to adjust that. So, so that is on track. So we're sort of in the mode now of, okay, we want to make sure that our, our codes are in sync. Because uh, as was again noted in the staff report, uh, you don't have to act to adopt the state codes. It's, it's done automatically. That's the way our code is written. We just have to have our amendments to catch up with it. So, um, so the, uh, the other things that have occurred during, during this cycle is that uh, we, we saw a necessity to tweak a few things and you know, to, to uh, accommodate you know, things that I've been doing through um, means, what we call means, alternate means and methods. And also the, uh, the fire marshal, uh, you know, since in the last cycle, uh, we, we convinced uh, council that it was appropriate to uh, ad adopt uh, fire sprinklers for residential construction, but he learned a lot in, in the application of that. And so a lot of these changes, the ones particularly was even questioned about, uh, relate to cleaning that up so that we're, that we're we're being fair, but at the same time uh, achieving the kind of protection that, that uh, fire sprinklers can provide. And uh, uh, and we're ready then to uh, to, to, to uh, explain that as part of the discussion. And uh, so uh, with that, you know, if we could go to the next slide. All right, which just hit. Or can you do it on screen? Is that no? Oh. Yep. Oh, there we go. Oops, I went to go to background. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so uh, the the exhibit uh, reflects the uh, the code language that would be necessary. Uh, wait, wait. Did I? No, I'm. I'm Or did we miss? There you go. Thanks. Oh, okay. okay. All right. So the uh, adoption of the additional appendices, uh, that was pretty simple. One of them, the, the, the state building code council directed, and that's to cover tiny, tiny homes. So we don't have to do anything extra on tiny homes. That was adopted at the state level, so we just have to reflect that in our code because uh, what's where our, our uh, this, this section of code is, is written. And then uh, updating the fire code amendments, and there were a number of things, uh, as again reflected in the staff report. Uh, uh, we work with the other members of the Zone 1 fire marshals, which to give you an idea territorially, it's explained in there, but it's everything of King County that's north and east of Seattle, but not including Seattle. And there's been some changes as recently as last month I understand uh, Mercer Island now has joined the east side uh, and as, as has Woodenville before. So there's, there's fewer numbers of organizations and of course uh, our fire department uh, uh, basically took over North Shore. They merged into, into that. So, so now uh, they're also responsible for <laughs> a little larger turf. Um, and 
and I've already explained what we're trying to accomplish with the uh, with the commercial energy code. So uh, I want to pass it to uh, Ryan to to explain some some of, some of the reasons why we needed these changes for the fire code. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Council Members, for your time today. Uh, so I've got a few questions here regarding the amendments to the sprinkler requirements. So when we initially passed the sprinkler code, um, there were some things that we didn't know at the time that we learned as we applied that code, uh, more specifically to the uh, additions language. So in uh, once we started exercising that language into the sprinkler ordinance, what we found was is that um, Folks that were trying to do uh, smaller additions to their homes, say between five and seven, eight hundred square feet, somewhere in there, uh, the way the code was written, it was kind of putting them in a spot where it was more, what was more penalizing them than anything, right? So uh, after going through those exercises multiple times, then we had the opportunity to also utilize that code language for homes that were of larger scales, so 6,000 square feet or larger. And the way the code was written, it was based on percentages, right? So 6,200 square feet or 25% or 50%. But when you actually apply the code, what ends up happening is, is those larger homes don't actually end up needing a sprinkler system. So you end up penalizing the smaller homes, uh, and typically those folks have a smaller budget to be able to do an addition. So uh, it became quite clear that we needed to look at this code and apply it a little bit differently. Um, and in doing so, I was looking at not just the sprinkler ordinance in itself, but also the other aspects of how we fight fires in our neighborhoods. And that's the utilization of um, uh, hydrants. And so what I proposed was kind of going back to where we were in a sense where it simplifies the sprinkler code in, um, when it comes to additions. You know, we're not talking new construction, but just additions and looking at Appendix B and the International Fire Code, which is just a general appendix that bases how much water you would need for a uh, square footage of a home, zero to 3,600 square feet or larger. And using that as a base model to kind of figure out, well, what water do we have in our system, right? Depending on where it is, whether it's uh, SPU or if it's North City water, and utilizing that information to judge whether or not a homeowner actually really needs a sprinkler system or not. Because the sprinkler system is, for residential purposes, is just for giving the homeowners that extra time to get out, right? But we're, it's more significant in newer construction because the size of our construction is a lot bigger. So in those smaller homes that are the, between the 13 and 1500 square feet and they want to add 525 square feet, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for them to go back and now demo you know, a good portion of their home to put a sprinkler system in. It comes at a rather significant cost to them in addition to doing an addition on their home. So um, we've, I've done the math on this as many ways as I could possibly do it. I uh, worked with the different water purveyors that serve the city of Shoreline and it's been uh, discussed amongst them as well as myself that this still meets what we're trying to do in protecting property. We're lucky that we have a fire department that responds very quickly to all the citizens in Shoreline. They get there super quick and um, not as fast as a sprinkler system, but for those homes that are existing that, that we're not utilizing the sprinkler ordinance for, um, I feel that our, our current water systems and our fire department do a really good job. Uh, so 
the goal was to try and basically simplify the code a little bit because the way that it was written previously was a little bit confusing. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've had a chance to kind of go back through the old codes, but if you were to try and sit down and with a set of plans and figure out, does this person really need a sprinkler system or not, it was a little bit confusing. So our current setup is to basically utilize Appendix B in the IFC to, to judge that along with what our local water systems have available in them. Um, and as I said, uh, to address kind of some of these questions, this isn't going to have anything to do with remodels. We don't do any uh, sprinkler requirements for remodels, uh, with the exception of if you consider adding a, a DADU as a, it's not necessarily a remodel, but it is a, a separate a building addition, which that's already written into the sprinkler code. So uh, any changes to our current sprinkler code is not going to require any additional staff or anything like that. Also, and um, the other point is that uh, the only uh, sprinkler systems that have to have get confidence testing are the ones that are commercial. In other words, once a sprinkler system uh, is in a residence, the, the fire department doesn't go back in, correct? That's correct. Yeah, 13R and full NFPA 13 systems are the only ones that require confidence testing on an annual basis. Okay, so let's see, which one do I get to get next? Okay. All right. So the, the next step, um, uh, st staff will be recommending uh, that we bring the, uh, the ordinance back and it will come back on uh, the 18th uh, since uh, the 11th is, uh, you'll, I think you'll be in D.C. or something, but anyway, you won't be here. Uh, so that's the closest date. And so that the uh, language will be consistent with the implementation at the state level, which we've already adopted. Uh, we're going to be proposing that uh, we make the actual effective date uh, retroactive to the to the week before. It's 10 days. So with that, uh, open up for questions. Councilmember Roberts. Thank you, Mayor. Thanks for being here tonight. Um, I have just a couple of questions, and probably the only reason it it flagged for me, and these are all related to fire code, um, was because we had a recent public comment about. Um, a community member talking about access to their private road and and wanting to work with the fire department to create like a fire lane. So um, so that's why I highlighted you know a couple of these points here, clarifying the fire lane pavement marking requirements. I'm curious about like who who does that? Who physically goes out and paints those, creates them, enforces them? Um, and I guess the same question about um, the private fire hydrant maintenance requirement standards and just like when those go into effect. So to speak specifically to the fire lane markings, um, as the city continues to grow and expand, um, we are seeing issues with parking. Um, and I understand that there, there was some discussion about potentially utilizing a parking enforcement group uh, within the within the police department, which is great because I think that we need it. And uh, oftentimes when there are pick, uh, parking issues within the city, the citizens will call us. Uh, thinking that we can enforce that parking issue, but unfortunately we can't because we don't have any enforcement capabilities. So we try to utilize uh, parking, no fire lane signage and striping to um, keep people from parking in those those certain areas. It's more common in the townhomes is because we've seen a ton of townhomes in the city. And so we have single uh, single lane access into a townhome. Sometimes it's shaped like an L and people will park along the fence lines and that inhibits our ability to at least bring an engine close enough if we have to fight a fire. 
Uh, now, granted, these a lot of these townhomes, uh, the newer ones uh, after 2021, when we adopted the sprinkler ordinance, have sprinkler systems. Um, we still have fires in them, and we've had a couple. So it's actually been, you know, every opportunity we have to see one of those situations, we learn from them, and it's always it always comes down to access. So, and then to answer your question about um, who maintains them. That's that's the tougher question to answer because uh, there technically isn't an answer unless uh, you have a townhome community that uh, forms an association, right? And then we would we would enforce them to maintain those fire lane stripings over time once they get faded. Um, one of the pieces of language we have in the IFC is the use of signage and or um, uh, fire lane striping. So. We tend to use both because we know that over time the fire lane striping is going to go away and they have to maintain that signage. So it's kind of a catch-all, um, but it's we currently do not have language in our uh, municipal code for the IFC that says that you know this individual or these people are responsible for maintaining that, that striping because a lot of times it comes in a uh, more or less private townhome community that they don't always tend to form an association. So it, it's kind of a sticking point at this time. Okay. And the other part of the access, don't forget, uh, 80 plus percent of their calls are aid calls. Yeah. And yeah. the aid, there's been instances where aid vehicles have Can't had difficulty in. getting mm -hmm. into. Right. Interesting. I think maybe something I'd like to talk about um, in the future, <laughs> like what more we can do, right? Um, and then just the other one is a small question, talking about sprinkling decks that are 24 inches um, on apartments. I mean, that's still really, I was trying to measure it out. That's really tiny, but I, so I was wondering about that need, and is that kind of that that distance where suddenly someone's going to try to put a little cooking device on their deck, and that would that be kind of the the thinking behind triggering a sprinkler at that size? Yeah, you are correct. So it used to be twelve inches, which that didn't make any sense. Um, not sure quite how that ended up in there, but uh, 24 inches basically from the edge of where your balcony is until you get to the edge of uh, a railing is what we would say is an area that you could potentially use as storage. Uh, Washington State recently adopted some language that is now going to make it illegal for people to store uh, items such as barbecues on on decks uh, with the exception that the de if the deck is sprinkled then they can mm -hmm. so um but you know we're finding uh, we're having to really look at how decks are being uh, sprinkled and how that whole thing is being applied because architects are utilizing different ways of doing decks they don't do decks on top of each other anymore they tend to stagger them so uh, there's lots of implications where we can actually utilize sprinklers on decks for that reason um, so uh, the the two feet is basically looking at it like what is this an area where they could potentially store a small barbecue um, and because even though the decks are non-combustible the building exterior still is so we're just trying to provide that little bit of exterior protection for those types of situations thank you for what you do thank you, thank you. deputy mayor mark uh, thank you um, Mr. Alehouse, Mr. Rujess, I really appreciate what you've done today. You've looked at problems and you figured out how to solve them. And you've solved them in a way that is going to be helpful for all. And uh, I'm just really grateful for your time. We've had a, a following up on Councilmember Robertson's uh, question, we've had a lot of people come and talk to us about access uh, and concern on same. And so one of the things 
that I would love to hear more from you uh, as suggested is what can we do? What can we do to make that work better? We're having giant apartment buildings. Hope they're sprinkled, but there's aid calls. There's other things that fires happen. So really concerned about that as is our citizens and just wanted to highlight that. Thank you for all your efforts on the energy code. Well done, thank you. Trying to give council what they want. And I, and I, I think we're very, the, the citizens of Shoreline are fortunate that you as a council are pressing that, you know, and that you're, you're taking uh, the carbonization issue to heart. And, and this is a big piece of it. Councilmember Scully. Thank you. I have a practical question and a comment. So on a, in the discussion section of the staff report, it says adoption of reference codes, see attachment A, adds tiny homes, appendix Y. I can't find it. I can't find it, appendix Y. And I care about that specifically because I just want to make sure we're not inadvertently authorizing tiny homes in a way that we might not to. I have mixed feelings about it. So no need to dig through and find it for me, but if staff can email it to me, I would appreciate it. Yeah, in other words, this this is the tiny home so that we have a technical code that covers tiny homes where they would be authorized under our land use code. So, gotcha. so it's so it's a it's just a tool so that as opposed to nothing. Trust you still want to see it and I could not find it. So if, okay. if you can help me with my inability to search, I'd appreciate it. Right. And the comment is Okay, on the sprinklers. I mean, my, my, I, I understand all those reasons, but my sense is the person who needs it the most is in a hospital bed in their living room and still smoking on oxygen. And many of those folks are in these older homes. Not all of them, but many of them are. And so I don't, I mean, I, I generally think the more sprinklers we can get in buildings, the better off we are. Not because it puts firefighters out of a job, but because for the folks who can't exit promptly, it gives them a minute or two. But there are certainly countervailing considerations, and I, I appreciate that you've crunched the numbers, and it's an acceptable risk. Well, well, one of the things, uh, Councilman Scully, that, that, that the fire department has been able to recognize uh, is, you know, since there's a lot of technical savvy folks, computer savvy folks uh, uh, in the city, and, that, uh, and these systems, these security systems, are becoming more affordable, and they can actually tie them into their smoke alarms. So in essence, so if they have a supervised system, a security system is supervised, it advises, well, that means if the smoke alarms are activated, you can have a situation where the fire department finds out about the fire at about the same time that people wake up. So we, we basically are giving them that that's as good as sprinklers. Uh, Councilmember Adamasu. Thank you both for answering the questions in such a short period of time. So I really do appreciate that. And International Fire Code is dear to my heart because <laughs> it is a prevention program, prevents and saves lives, prevents fires and saves lives and protects property. Um, so there's no Appendix B <laughs> to show when you said you were doing the calculations um, using the 6200 total building square footage. Um, the way I read exemptions one, two, and three, the way you struck it out is, for example, you heard a lot about affordable housing tonight. Mm -hmm. So young family trying to buy a house 700 square feet. I want to put a 600 foot addition on. 
the way I read these codes is you're going to require them to put sprinklers in there. So is there something in the Appendix B that's not in here that shows me a different calculation? Are you referring to the existing code that we had? Yeah, the, well, the existing code is what you struck out. Yeah, so that's correct. So the existing code was, that's what was actually pushing uh, those, that specific type of homeowner that you were talking about into potentially having to add a sprinkler system. Whereas the, the code that we're, we're looking at adding specifically goes off Appendix B. So unless they meet a 3,600 square foot threshold. See, and that's nowhere in here. So unless I see Appendix B, I'm not seeing the 3,600 square foot. So I was assuming anything over 500 square foot would require the sprinkler. So the, I, I believe the language for the 500 square feet, all that does is it recommends that the fire department do a review. And then through that review process, that's where we decide what are we actually looking at? Because we don't know what the existing square footage of the home may be. So if they're proposing to do a 500 square foot addition or more, then we get to look at the project overall and then figure out, okay, what kind of scope are we looking at here? And is it a, is it a 600,000 or a 6,000 square foot yeah. house doing 500 square feet? Or is it 1,300 that are adding 500 square feet? And then that way we can get a, a more, a, more diverse look at all of the housing versus looking at just you know a or b and it, it allows us to because before what it was it was doing is it was making it so that so many of those types of homes were being pushed into that and it was, i wasn't comfortable with it personally because um you know like council member scully said I, I would love to put sprinkler systems in every house <laughs> but it's not always going to work for everybody and mm -hmm. i i understand that we, we had folks who were saying, this is gonna kill my project. Yes. So the other side of that was, in lieu of doing sprinklers, if you were getting close to that threshold and you didn't meet the fire flow requirement from, you know, from the hydrant down your street, we gave them an option to put smoke detection in their house that's monitored. So instead of having somebody come in and do a full sprinkler system, they could do that. So, um, and that could be through an existing security system that they already have. And the, with the technology that we have today, they can utilize smoke detection that's not wired. It's all, uh, it's all through the cellular in the home. Um, so those are, we're just trying to provide additional options to, to create more uh, safe measures for our citizens without having to have them incur a huge cost to just to do a small addition. So I think that the, the language that, we, that we're proposing is going to create um, a review process that actually allows us to really look at um, an individual's project and say, yeah, this doesn't really meet the criteria. They have a hydrant within 300 feet of their home that provides 1,500 gallons per minute, and uh, our fire department will be at their house in approximately five and a half to six minutes for a fire response. So 3,600 square feet, anything less than that for total building would not require the sprinkler, and that's in Appendix B? Correct. If you look at Appendix B, there's two charts. There's a chart one and a chart two. Um, so in Appendix B 105, uh, it says anything from zero to 3,600 square feet. It tells you how much water is required. And then it gives you another option. If you, if you have a house that's sprinkled, it cuts that water reliability in half. So you only would need, so let's say if you're at 1,000 gallons, you only need 500 gallons a minute for firefighting capabilities. Okay, so if, if I could have Appendix B or the whole council, right. okay. that's...
Uh, that's a good catch, okay. and we'll, we'll go back and we'll make sure if we need to, to hook that or to uh, make a reference to That's the difference so between me understood. saying yes or no. So when I saw that. the 6200, I was, I was like, right. okay. a, a small homeowner is never going to be able to afford that. And I'm looking at corrosion issues. I'm looking at O&M issues. I'm looking at mold, that slime that, you know, if it's sitting there with still water for 10 years, I'm a biologist. I know bugs are going to grow in there, corrosion. So it's not going to be flushed. It's not going to be inspected. So it's for a small, low-income homeowner, it's, it's going to be very difficult. So, so thank you. I look forward to seeing that. And thank you for great international fire code amendments. That, that there, is, there is a technical solution. That they have what they call a flow-through system and they hook it into the end of the line that's covering all the sprinkled heads. It goes into a toilet, it's the feed to the toilet. So you end up with water going through the system. It's a flow through system. And also it reduces the cost of the installation because you don't have to use sprinkler type pipe. You can actually pipe it with PEX. So there is a solution. Thank you. Uh, I have, uh, I think this, this is, I thank you for working on this. Uh, I know it took some time because of changes at the state code level. Um, my, with the state building council, my question is, I mean, I, and I think that was answered before, but I just want to raise it again, is I'm, when we think about what uh, Seattle has and in its building code and also its fire code is the ability for buildings to be built with single stairs. And this may be, so, but I think the response was this, we need both a code amendment, a development code amendment and a, build, a fire code amendment for that to happen within the city of Shoreline. Is that correct? That, that is correct. Uh, and you'll be appreciate the fact to know, Mayor, that um, the, uh, the Washington Association of Building Officials, our technical code development committee, we are trying to, we're working on language that addresses being able to potentially expand the single exit uh, provisions. Uh, and uh, if that's developed, or as soon as we develop that to a level, we're actually trying to propose it even at a national level, so it would become part of the, of the model codes. Uh, but uh, we got to strike uh, a, uh, find the right, the sweet spot between where, because uh, as Ryan can point out, one of the problems is, is don't forget that that same stair tower that people are trying to get out of is what the, the fire department needs to haul hoses up. So we need to be able to convince them that uh, we aren't creating a hazard that could end up killing people, right? Yeah, if I could speak to that a little bit. So we have a training tower uh, over here at Station 61, and that is a single stairway that goes up, and it's, it's, uh, it's less than four feet wide. And I can tell you I've spent uh, many, many hours in that training tower. And when you get um, anywhere between five to six firefighters uh, going in and out of there, which is about what you're going to get on an initial response, um, and you start dragging hose up that stairwell, I can't tell you how many times I've tripped and fallen down the stairs um, with all the chaos that's going on. And so the thought of that and, and reading, reading some of the, you know, the literature on this proposal, uh, is uh, obviously that has its limitations to building size and height. Um, but, you know, I would always be afraid that somebody somewhere down the line is going to say, well, this looks like a great idea. Let's start applying this to our, you know, 200 plus multifamily buildings. 
And just with the sheer amount of people that are in those buildings, we, we can't have one stairwell because we're going to be operating in it as well as people are going to be coming out. And, and once you th start throwing hose in there and, and, and all of the other activities that we are utilizing to um, uh, you know, extinguish a fire event, it's going to create a lot of chaos. So I think that it might have a place for a certain type of building of a certain size. Uh, but you know, if we're, if we're talking about trying to apply something like that to our larger multifamily building, it's going to cause a lot of problems. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate the answer. I, I do, I mean, from what I've heard and read about this, I mean, it's not really for the, those very large projects or if they are, there are multiple, I mean, there are multiple stairs, but what the building is is just not have the hallway corridor. And, um, but I do know that, I mean, heights for some of these single stair buildings, if you look at Europe, I mean, are, are, they're not really allowed for limited, except for limited exceptions in like Seattle. But uh, in Europe, I mean, they're getting a little bit higher and I know that some of the building material is much safer. And then when, once you add sprinklers, then you, I mean, these, many of these buildings are pretty safe. And so some of the reasons for multiple exits some of them <laughs> may be a little bit less than they were. Obviously, aid and other things are different matter. But I don't see any concern. Well, Councilman Adamasi, I mean, are you looking for? I'll look for Appendix B. So I guess, unless I'm hearing anything differently, I think we put this on consent, barring, I think there's a couple uh, emails to be sent to the council to just review, make sure that we're all okay with that. But I believe that we, this can come back on consent from what I've heard. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all for your time. Appreciate it. Okay, so the council is now going to recess into an executive session for a period of 20 minutes as authorized by RCW 4231101B to consider the selection of a site or the acquisition of real estate by lease or purchase. The council is not expected to take action following the executive session. It is now 850.
This uh, city council meeting is adjourned. <laughs>